Well, good evening. How are you guys doing? Uh, good Easter. I hope, I hope you had a great Easter weekend. Uh, our family did. We, we kind of got together with um, my parents, two brothers, and 12 grandkids, and it was just a madhouse, just an absolute madhouse. But it, it's so much fun to be able to remind ourselves what it is that uh, is the center of our, of our lives, which is resurrection, new life. So I, I hope you went into the weekend prepared. I hope you went into it in a way where um, you were reminded again of, oh yeah, that's what my life is about. Oh yeah, that's who's, who's I am. Um, hey, one thing real quickly as sort of a, um, awareness on the back of your bulletin, uh, something that there's a group of people who I've been working with for a couple months now um, who have had a real heart to say, man, I wanna, I wanna have something for people who are kind of starting out in their journey with Jesus. A lot of the language we use around here is timberline and we've got peaks and all that sort of thing. And, and this one guy, Brian, brought up, he said, sometimes like, when you think about your spiritual journey, like what's the trailhead? You know what I mean? Like, how do you start out? What do you need to bring? You know, when you go on a hike, there's a trailhead that tells you, like, here's where to go. You need to be sure to have, like, your water bottle with you. Like, what does that mean? And so he was kind of using that analogy to say, what, what if we provided some time on a Sunday morning where we would invite people to this trailhead about faith? And each week, we, we just talk a little bit about this is what it means to kind of move forward with Jesus. These are some of the tools we have. And we kind of just dive into the Gospel of John immerse ourselves in, in the story. So if you're at that place where you're like, I could use that, I could use a trailhead, or maybe you know someone, maybe even who's made a recent commitment, um, and that, that trailhead would be needed for them, this Sunday is when we're starting that. And I just noticed it doesn't say the time on there. That's my fault. Uh, I should say 10 a.m. So 10 a.m. this Sunday. So invite someone, bring someone, uh, ask them to come, to come with you. So we're... Um, we're starting a new series, and this is hard for me to believe. We only have three more weeks, and we're done for the summer, which is crazy. I was just talking with someone before the service saying, that, like, spring always feels longer to me, and this one has not felt that way. It's like it's gone by so fast. I can't believe it that we only have three more weeks before uh, Wednesdays will pause, kids, uh, students, and adults, and um, we will start back up here in, in the fall. So anyway, three-week series that, that we're going to jump into that thought would be kind of interesting to do, thinking about, um, you know, we tend to talk about the resurrection big, like, okay, once a year it's Easter. The early followers of Jesus, like, every time they met, they talked about the resurrection. Every writing in the New Testament is a reflection on the implications of the resurrection. And so what I thought might be kind of interesting to do is to look at what I'm calling the, the lost 40 days of Jesus. Now, there, it's half of that title is purely for sensationalistic advertising. Okay, I will admit it. Um, they're not really lost in the sense of, oh, we just discovered them. But I think they're lost as in to their importance to think about the significance of, like, what took place? Because what, what we read, um, in fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and actually, let me ask you this question. When did Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, stop? His teaching and action ministry. His physical, when he's physically here. Yeah. It's not, at the, it's not at the crucifixion. It's not even at the resurrection. It's like 40 days later. And in fact, we read Acts chapter 1. This is volume 2 from this guy named Luke 
who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then his like part two is Acts, and he starts out by saying, um, in my former book, I wrote all the things that Jesus did and taught until when? The day he was taken up to heaven. And he says, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, so he's still being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he's giving instruction to the 12 and the others that he has chosen over those 40 days. And then uh, he writes, after his suffering, meaning the cross, he presented himself to them, to his followers, gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. We'll look at some of those over the next couple weeks. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. It says, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Well, that's the exact same phrase that's used all throughout the gospel. What did Jesus do? He came and taught about the kingdom of God. That's, that's sort of the paraphrase way to talk about everything that Jesus talked about. So meaning his teaching ministry continued right on after the resurrection for this key 40-day period. And it's interesting, it's 40 days. Um, I'm not entirely positive if there's anything significant about that. Uh, as I read different commentators, some kind of think there is, some say... Nah, it's just the apostles looking back and saying, yeah, he was here for about 40 days. But um, he spends this amount of time with them. Maybe one key thing is 40 days typically plays a role of preparation. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and as soon as he's done, it's his ministry, right? Um, so 40 days oftentimes can, can play sort of a symbolic meaningful, meaning like something's going to happen. Something, it's leading up to something. So Jesus is there for four, what, what's going to happen? Well, what we know what happens is Pentecost, the, the spirit being given, the same spirit that Jesus was using, acting through in all of his ministry, he says, now I give it to all of you. So maybe there's something significant there. But um, Jesus does a lot of other things. In fact, the end of John's gospel, 21-25, he makes this kind of end uh, comment, he says, Jesus did, this is after he's done talking about the ministry, Jesus did many other things as well, and then he kind of does hyperbole here, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. <laughs> the implications, what, what all did Jesus do? What, were, what was going on, you know, in these conversations and that? And so tonight what I want us to do, I want us to look at one of these key moments where Jesus appeared to two of his disciples who were very disillusioned, who had given up. The resurrection has happened and there are rumors of it. They don't kind of buy it. They're just like, I'm done. I'm, we're going back home. And this is the last chapter of the book of Luke. It's in your bulletin. However, I noticed once it got in there, it's really small. So it might be hard for you to read. Um, so we'll have the uh, text up on screen. But I've asked Hayes if he would come. He's got a much smoother, more beautiful voice than I do. So I've asked Hayes to come read for us this section of Luke 24. You want to do it there or here? Thanks, Hayes. Hi. Uh, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they, uh, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? 
They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopasis asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and the deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them and what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we had talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Then they found the eleven and those with them and assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them and when he broke the bread. Good. Thank you, Hayes. I appreciate it. So this is the story. And let me, let me lay some groundwork before we get into the text to kind of set the stage for what I think Luke is trying to get us as the reader to see, okay? Um, and I want to do that by showing you an image. Uh, there's going to be a, an image. It's an oil painting, oil painting of Jesus up on the... How many of you know this picture? Yeah, probably all of you, I think, have seen this picture, uh, Warner Solomon was the artist. You've probably never heard of him. Warner Solomon in the early 20th century was a very well-known name because of his oil paintings. This painting in particular, uh, Warner Solomon's, it's called uh, The Head of Christ. Warner Solomon's The Head of Christ. And this painting is the most um, mass-produced painting in the world. In the world. There, there are over 500 million copies of this, sometimes inside Bibles, sometimes on calendars, maybe it's magnets, whatever it might be. But if you count all those up, 500 million copies of Warner Solomon's Head of Christ have been mass produced. Um, in fact, Warner Solomon, he, uh, he was very well known for this. He, he would go around and sketch this picture. In fact, uh, he sketched it about 500 times. He would do it at youth conventions. Uh, this, is, this was done in 1940s. This is like pre-World War II. And in the 40s and 50s, this was like an icon of the 40s and 50s. And he would go around and teach. He would present the gospel. And it was kind of cool. He would, he would be drawing this because he could draw this thing in his sleep. He had drawn it like hundreds of times. So he would be drawing this image maybe with chalk, and he'd be presenting the gospel. He'd just, you know, kind of be going like that sort of thing. Really, really cool. And um, he, he would sketch this, but uh, 
In fact, uh, there are a lot of other pictures. You'd, you'd probably be familiar with some of them. There's one, uh, just as I was looking at this week, called Jesus, Our Pilot. And as I look it up, I realize I'm like, I had that on my wall as a kid. Like, that was in my bedroom. It was this picture of, like, this Warner Solomon's Jesus. And there's, like, a boy, and he's on a boat, and he's got, like, the, the wheel. What do you call that? The wheel on a boat? I don't sail. I don't know what that is. But. So he's got that, and, and he's like a red shirt, and Jesus is like standing over his shoulder pointing, like I'm directing you. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like the, I grew up with that picture. Like That was Jesus to me as a kid, and I, I haven't seen the picture in years. But, but many of us like grew up with sort of a certain image of who Jesus was, of what he was like. And here's the point. Every image has like understory, backstory. It has kind of like built-in assumptions to it. Do you know what I mean by that? Everything that, you know, that we have, um, there, there comes with a set of sort of unexamined assumptions. Um, and one feature of this painting, uh, that if you look at it, something that would stand out about this picture to someone, say, 2,000 years ago, who knew Jesus, would be what? What do you suppose, might, what feature might be a little odd? Yeah, he's this very handsome, kind of Scandinavian-looking Caucasian man with long hair uh, that's beautifully combed. Um, Yeah, did Jesus look like this? Well, um, no, no, not not really. Um, In a second, I'm going to show you another another image. Not don't put it up quite yet. In 2002, there were a group of New Testament scholars who got together with some forensic scientists. Um, And they went over to Jerusalem and Israel, kind of the surrounding area, and uh, they they were given access to skulls and skeletons of Jewish men from around the first century period. Their their, their purpose was to to kind of get a picture of what, what did the average Judean man in around Jesus' time, first century, like what, what would he have looked like, just to kind of get an idea. And so they, they took these 3D scans of these skulls. Sounds kind of weird, but you can do this. Um, and so kind of came up, re- recreated what, what the average Judean man looked like in first century Palestinian Israel. And this was the picture that they, that they put out. Um, he would have been about mid five. This this average. I'm not saying this is Jesus. Okay, um, the the average Jewish man was about mid five foot, but I think like five six was the average height. Uh, he would ha- he would have had dark skin. He would have had coarse black hair, uh, brown eyes. He would have had short hair. If you remember some of Paul's writings, he's actually he writes to some of the churches talking about you know the inappropriate like talking about normal standards of male versus female, and he has this assumption that, well, men have short hair. So Paul's were, so Jesus would have had short hair. It wouldn't have been long hair. But this, this whole project was to say, this is probably closer to what Jesus looked like than uh, Warner Solom's uh, head of Christ. And I remember, I remember when this came out. I remember when this... Anyone else you remember like when this kind of hit the, yeah, it was on the internet and stuff like early 2000. I don't know about you, but I remember seeing it and I was like, I, re, I kind of recoiled. I was like, baloney, it's not what Jesus looks like. He was on my wall growing up. Now, I mean, I, honestly, I was kind of uncomfortable. I just, I'm like, 
I would not put this picture on my kid's wall, you know, it, like, hey, this guy's going to be watching you tonight, you know, just so you know. Um, I, I wasn't comfortable. Why? Why was I not comfortable with this more from my cultural standards, more handsome Jesus that I had grown up with? And the point is that it, it brings the age-old truth that how we perceive people, that, that our perceptions about someone's appearance drives our assumptions, don't they? They really do drive our assumptions. Um, first impressions and appearances, we all do this. As soon as you meet someone, you, you kind of start sizing them up. You just make assumptions, right? And then you create backstories, right? Based on what they look like, their appearance. You just, am I the only one who does this? Maybe I'm the only horrible person here. I, I think we all do this, right? We just create backstories that, that kind of explain who they are and how they're that way. And that's probably why they always kind of look like that because of this backstory that I've created. How many of you have ever met anyone, developed kind of those stories in your mind? Yeah, this is kind of what I think they're like. And then you've taken the time to get to know them. Uh, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's someone at school. But after a while, you realize that you'd never tell them that because you're too embarrassed. But <laughs> you realize that those, those assumptions you made are totally wrong. They're totally false. But see, to do that, it takes humility. You have to like spend time with them. You have to say, I have assumptions that are probably not true. They're unexamined. I have to kind of put my assumptions out there. I have to think about what are my assumptions about people who are like this or people who kind of look like that. But we, we all do this. And so this image of Jesus, uh, not so this or whatever your image of Jesus is, and I don't mean physically. I hope you know I'm talking deeper than that. Whatever your image of Jesus is, I would suggest has preloaded assumptions about who he is, about what he's like, about what he wants for you, about what he wants from you. All of these different things that we have certain assumptions. And so we have to allow Jesus, I would suggest, to challenge our assumptions about him or we will remain blind and not really see. We'll see him, but we won't really see him. We can, we can walk with Jesus, I would suggest, for a long time. Think about these disciples. How long had they spent with Jesus? Years, like three years, right? A lot of time. And yet, he's kind of going, don't you get it? And they're, no, I don't, right? Because their assumptions are so hardwired in there that what happened on the cross blew their categories out. It absolutely blew all their categories. And so what, here's the question for tonight. What does it take for us to have our blinders removed to, to see my assumptions, and that's what Luke 24 is all about here. So, so let's jump into the story. And um, Luke 24, and I'm going to kind of like summarize all this stuff. I won't necessarily read it, but I'll tell you which verse I'm in if you want to follow along, if you can see in that itty-bitty little writing, sorry. Uh, Luke 24, verse 13. So context here, um, the, the tomb has been found empty by these women. They've reported it back. There's chatter What's happened? No one's quite sure what's going on. But we see that in uh, verse 13, that these two men, they're, they're going, they're walking to, a, what's the location they're going to? Emmaus. Now, hold, hold on to that. 
underline that we're going to come back to it. It's actually super significant for this story. It's about like a day's walk. It's like seven miles from Jerusalem. Um, and they're, they're leaving Jerusalem because remember, so apparently they live in Emmaus. That's their hometown. They're in Jerusalem for the festival because what was the big festival that just took place? Passover, biggest day in the Jewish calendar. So they're there for Passover. They're going back home and they're, it says they're talking to each other. What do you think they're talking about? What, what would you be talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about this. You've sold like half your possessions. You've spent the past three years following this guy around who, who's talking about the, the rule of God coming back to Israel, right? He's, he's, uh, he's selected 12 representatives representing the Israelite people. He's, he's claiming to, have, to play this messianic role, to be the Messiah. And he's, he keeps talking about the kingdom of God coming and that he's bringing it. And then, he, and then he marches into Jerusalem on the biggest holiday of the year, Passover. And then he's killed at the hands of the Romans and crucified. Like, what would you be talking about? Think about this. You're, you're, you're walking back home. You've kind of given up. I'm done with this. And what we find is that um, Jesus' death has, has shattered all of his followers. And the reason why is that they had a picture of Jesus in their mind that was more like uh, Warren Salmer's picture. It, it was not an accurate picture of who Jesus was. And there were all these driving assumptions about who Jesus was and what he was coming to Jerusalem to do. And so verse 15, it says, um, as they talked, they were discussing these things. And then Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And this is not an uncommon thing to have people. This is a common uh, travel area, so another Jewish man passing by and walking and talking to you is not a big deal, but Jesus comes up, this Jewish man, and starts talking uh, to them, and he, he asks them, um, uh, let's see here, oh, and let me just make a comment about this, what Luke's trying to build in here, because it says that basically they see, I mean, do they see him? Yeah, I mean, they're talking to him, right? They know there's this man here. But do they see him? No. And so Luke is setting this weird thing up of like, they see him, but they don't see him. <laughs> They're talking to him, but they don't know it's Jesus. And so then he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along the road? And they stood with their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asks him, he says, are, are you like the only person who's visiting Jerusalem who, who, who doesn't know what has happened? And you get the irony there? I mean, it's not just that he, you know, you don't know, like he is what happened, right? And so there's this sort of irony in the story here. In 19, he, he kind of plays dumb. Jesus goes, oh, really? What, what, what things are those? What, what things have, have happened here? Now, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to expose their assumptions. That's why he's doing this. He's not just playing a game because he likes like tricking. This isn't like parlor tricks. He's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get these guys, right? He's saying, you have assumptions underneath that keep you from seeing me. Let me show you how I can expose them. Here's what he says. Uh, what things? And they said, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was, listen how they describe him. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and in deed. That's referring to his miracles. 
uh, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But now here's the key part. I want you to underline one word here because it's really key. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to, what's the word? Redeem. We believed he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Underline that word, circle that word. See, he just exposed their, their picture of Jesus, of what their picture was about their assumptions. Now think about, think about the word redemption. Um, this whole story centers around this word. Um, think about, like this is a word that we use in English some, right? I mean, there are movies that have the word redemption in it, right? Um, I was trying to think this week, like what are things you redeem? Um, like credit card points, right? Like if you have a credit card and you get money, like you call and there's like the redemption center, they call it, or, you know, so you get mileage or whatever it might be. Or if you're like my kids, you know, you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you get tickets and then you take the tickets and you redeem them at the counter for some cheap ball that's gonna break in like an hour or something. Or um, I, I'm thinking, first place my mind went to, to be totally honest, is uh, Dumb and Dumber when Lloyd and Harry and Lloyd sells the van for a little scooter and he pulls up and he goes, just when I think you can't be any dumber. Remember what he said? You can totally redeem yourself. That's what I think about when I'm reading the Bible. That's what I think about when I read the Bible, just so you know, in all honesty. <laughs> Here's the, what I would suggest is the most common way we use the word redemption in our culture, just in the English language. I think this is fair. We speak about it like when there's a, a tragic, bad, horrible situation, and somehow it's transformed into like a good or a beautiful thing, right? That's, that's you know, think about movies you might know or whatever. That's kind of maybe the most common way that we use the word redemption. Now, in the Bible, this word has a really specific origin. Um, any guesses the very first time that this word appears in the Bible? Any, any guesses which book? Not Genesis. We'll keep going down all 66. Yeah, no, you're right, Exodus. It was Exodus, yeah. The very first time this word appears in the Bible is in the book of Exodus, but it's in a particular story. It's uh, Exodus chapter 6, and let me start reading in verse 5 and read along with me here. Now, this is, um, this is before, uh, so God calls Moses to deliver the Israelites. And remember Moses, you've seen the movie, and he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is before that happens, but this is God telling Moses what's going to happen. So in Exodus 6, 5, the Lord says to Moses, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. First time that word is ever used in scripture. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of what? Judgment, okay? So, this is shaping what this word means to these Jewish people. This is their story. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This first appears in a story about a group of slaves who are liberated and brought into a place of freedom to serve God from that, that place. So think about, now again, this word has meaning. The, these two Jewish disciples 
This is the first time this word ever bubbles up in their culture. And this is the story they know better than anything else. They've just celebrated Passover, which, which was the reenacting of this story, right? And the, what's the story about? Pharaoh gets his, right? Pharaoh's this rotten dude who's just horrible. He's grinding them into the ground through slavery. He commits genocide by throwing their boys into the Nile River. He's, he's attempting to just wipe this people off the face of the earth. He is, he is the embodiment of evil, okay? So this is the story in the mind. Jesus kept saying, I'm coming to redeem Israel, okay? Now, in their mind, who is Pharaoh? In their mind, first century, Pharaoh's Caesar, right? Yeah, if Rome, Egypt is Rome, right? And Pharaoh has, you know, his little cronies, like this guy Pilate, who just had Jesus crucified. And so, um, what, what do messiahs do who, who redeem? What, what do kings do who redeem? Um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Passover, religious political holiday, uh, which is the retelling of this redemption. Well, first thing he's going to do is kill a bunch of Romans. I mean, clearly. He will go to the Antonia Fortress, which was built like right next to the temple by Herod the Great, <laughs> named after Mark Anthony. And that's what they use in case things ever break out in the temple, they can just start you know, shooting down their arrows. So they're going to storm the temple. I mean, there's a certain way you would just do it. That's what redemption is in their mind. So we kind of have to sympathize with these people. Jesus has been talking about redeeming Israel. Oh, yeah, 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 I know what that is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm already there. Say no more, right? I know what you're talking about. And now there's one more piece. I mentioned the name of the town. Um, this is really important. Verse 13, it says that they're on the road going to Emmaus, right? So here, here's why this is so important. Um, imagine if I said to you, I wanted to, um, there's, a, there's a portion of American history that I really like, I'm passionate about, and so I went to Pearl Harbor. What immediately comes to your mind? Memorial of, of for what? Yeah, Pearl Harbor, World War II, right? When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I mean, if you've seen movies, if you were alive and you've seen pictures, all of that comes to mind, right? When I just say Pearl Harbor, right? Well, he says he's going to Emmaus. What's so big about Emmaus? Well, there's something you could look it up online. There's something called the, the war or the battle of Emmaus. This happened about 150 years before Jesus. Every Jewish boy, this was their like Braveheart story, Okay, like they knew this really, really well. There was a group, um, Israel was being oppressed not by Rome, but by Syria at this time. And um, there was uh, this one Syrian general named Gorgias. And this group of Jewish rebel fighters called the Hammers, or in Hebrew, the Maccabees, um, they, they started these like rebellions against the Syrians. And um, in fact, let me read kind of a, encapsulation of this. This is, comes from 1 Maccabees 4. This happened just about 150 years, but this, is, this was like their Pearl Harbor. This is what this was known for, in a sense. Now, Gorgias, this is a Syrian, took 5,000 infantry, three, uh, and 1,000 uh, packed cavalry, and his division moved out by night to fall upon the camp of the Jews and attack them suddenly. Men from the citadel were his guides. But Judas, that's, that's the hammer guy. He's, he's the Jewish guy who's like hammering against the Syrians. Heard of it. He and his mighty men moved out to attack the king's force at Emmaus. 
while the division was still absent from the camp. When Gorgias entered the camp of Judas, or the hammer, by night, he found no one there, so he looked for them in the hills, because he said, these men are fleeing from us. At daybreak, Judas, the hammer, appeared, uh, um, appeared in the plain with 3,000 men. So think of the odds there. Two to one, not good odds. Uh, but they did uh, not have armor and swords such as they desired. And they saw the camp of the Gentiles. These are the non-Jewish people. Okay, this is the picture of mine. Strong and fortified with cavalry round about it. And these men were trained in war. But Judas, but the hammer said to the men who were with him, this is like one of those great, this is the Braveheart speech, okay, before they get on the horses and they run out there, like this is the big speech. He says, do not fear the numbers or be afraid if they charge. Remember how our fathers were saved at the Red Sea. What's he referring to? Yeah, the Exodus. This is in his mind too. Remember how our fathers were saved at the Dead Sea when Pharaoh and his forces pursued them. Now let us cry to heaven to see whether he will favor us and remember his covenant with our fathers and crush this army before us. And when he does that, he says, then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems and saves. Interesting. Listen, listen to the... Listen to the meaning of that word for that people. And then he goes on, he says, when, when, foreigners looked, when the foreigners looked up and saw uh, them coming against them, they went forth from their battle. Then the men with Judas, the hammer, blew their trumpets and they engaged in the battle. The Gentiles were crushed, awesome, and fled into the plain and all those in the rear fell by the sword. They killed all the ones that couldn't keep up. That's redemption, baby. <laughs> That's what it's about. It's about Pharaoh getting judgment, getting justice. Why? Because he's wicked and broken. It's about Gorgias and the Assyrians getting justice and judgment. Why? Because they're evil and they're oppressing Israel. That's what redemption means, okay? That's really what it means in their mind here. So in Luke 24, you have two Jewish men raised, steeped on these stories. You use the word redemption, that's its meaning. So when Jesus talks about, I'm bringing the kingdom of God, and he appoints 12, he marches into Jerusalem, if you're there, in your mind, what's happening? What's going on? Redemption. It's finally, but, but it's Rome's turn, because Rome is, is Egypt, and Caesar is Pharaoh. It's the same, it's the same thing. That's how you redeem a people. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus think he was redeeming Israel? Yeah. He really thought he was redeeming Israel. But here's the crazy part. It wasn't by killing his enemies, but to be killed by his enemies. What? That doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> we kind of think, oh, yeah, that's the church answer. You need to shake my head. No, that, that doesn't make sense, though. Redemption means something. Why, why would you go and do this? See, Jesus' followers, these two guys on the road, these two disciples, they've been with him. They'd heard Jesus' teaching, but their picture of Jesus didn't allow the content to come in because they had a different picture. They heard words like this. If you go back and just to chapter 6 of Luke, Luke 6, 27, we, Luke tells us that Jesus was out on a plane and he was teaching People And he said, but I say to you that hear me, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And as you wish that men would do for you, so do to them. Uh, if you love only those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do this. And he goes on talking in this way. Jesus has this crazy idea that the way to confront evil is by doing good in response, which again, doesn't make any sense. That, that suffering sacrificial love is the right response to evil in our world. Um, and these weren't just words to Jesus, were they? Jesus lived it. What happened on the cross? What happened to him? He did all those things, right? They hit him on the face and he didn't return. They cursed at him and he blessed them. Did he pray for his enemies while on the cross? Yes, Father, forgive them. Jesus did, Jesus embodied all of this perfectly. He did all of this thing when he came to Jerusalem. In fact, the night he was betrayed, he tried to explain. He'd been saying this for years to his followers, right? Why couldn't they get it? Because of their portrait of Jesus, their, their picture of what Jesus is really like. And so even the night he's betrayed, he, before he goes out into the garden, he takes the Passover meal. Ooh, it's about redemption. This is about them getting theirs, right? And what does he do? Well, he takes the symbols and he reshapes them almost inverts them like, no, they actually mean not what you think they mean. He's, he's reshaping them around what's going to happen. Again, did Jesus believe he was going to accomplish redemption? Yes, but not by becoming Moses and squashing Pharaoh, but by becoming the lamb. And no one saw that coming. Well, that doesn't make sense by becoming the lamb. Why? How does that, the lamb of the Passover meal? Crazy that's crazy talk. I mean, that's like saying something as crazy as if, if, if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it for my sake. You want, you want to be the most important person? You need to become a slave. What? That's crazy talk. That, doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. See, when the disciples came marching into Jerusalem with Jesus, Palm Sunday, you know, they're coming in for this last week, they came in marching with Warner Solomon's head of Christ. They came, yeah, Jesus said we're supposed to love people. I get that. I get that sort of thing. But, but my portrait of Jesus wouldn't overturn everything that I know about how to live and get ahead in life and what real power means. He wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't be that, that wild. See, Luke here is inviting us, I would suggest. Luke is inviting us to, to see ourselves in these two Jewish disciples of Jesus. Because if, if you're not bothered by Jesus in some area of your life, I am. I won't tell you what all those areas are. <laughs> but if you're not bothered in some areas in your life about what Jesus calls you to, it's possible that you are not really seeing, you're seeing Jesus, but maybe you're not really, Luke would say, seeing Jesus. Is it possible? Here's my question. Is it possible that I could go to church for years, be a Christian, read my Bible, 
Come to Wednesday night community. Um, give Brent gifts. Do, not trying to seed anything to you, but I, that I could do all of these wonderful things and not really see Jesus? That's what Luke's trying to say here. Luke's point is that. These guys walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, loved Jesus. I mean, truly they did. And yet Luke's trying to point out, look, they have these assumptions that they, they, they never really saw Jesus. So how, do this, how does this resolve? How do they finally see? Uh, you'll see in verse 21, halfway through, it says, um, and, and what is more, it's the third day, they're, they're telling them what's happened. It's the third day this is since uh, Jesus' death. In addition, some of our women, they say, like they're saying these really weird things that um, the, they found the tomb empty, they can't find his body. <clears throat> they came and told us uh, that they had seen a vision of an angel who said he was alive. Um, some of our people are claiming it. We don't, we don't really know. And then Jesus says to them in verse 25, fools. <laughs> That's harsh, right? Fools. How foolish you are. And this is interesting. He says, how slow to believe. Now, this is the NIV. Anyone have a, a different version that, 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 what does it say? How, how slow Anyone have the word heart in their translation? Um, slow of heart to believe, which that's, that's probably a better translation that's a little more accurate the, because the point is this. He actually uses that word heart there, slow of heart to believe. See, what he's not saying is, oh, you just don't have enough facts. See, the heart is our core values, it's our commitments. It's our underlying assumptions. It's our desires about what we really want in life. He said, how slow of heart you are to believe that your heart is so loaded with assumptions about what you think God wants for you and how you think your life should go and what you think it means to follow Jesus. And so what does he do for them? I love this part. If I could go back in time to any teaching of Jesus, this is what I would go back to. And Luke just like paraphrases. I'm like, tell me what he said, man. It's so, so often like I want more. Um, so he says this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. Like he started in Genesis. It's like, here, this is the big story. He explained to them. And what I want to do is pause, and I want to show you guys a five-minute video that I don't think this is exactly what Jesus said, but it's trying to answer the question, wait, how is it that all of the scriptures are about Jesus? So take a look at this video real quickly here. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, 
this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available 
to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Jesus said he started, or we're told by Luke, that he, he went back with all of the scriptures, meaning the Hebrew scriptures, Moses' writings, the prophets, the Psalms, and he explained why this had happened, why redemption had, redemption was about judgment, right? I mean, we know that all the way back, it's about judgment, judgment on Pharaoh, judgment on, the problem is, how many Pharaohs can you kill? The problem is, sometimes I become Pharaoh. What Jesus was pointing out <clears throat> What, what really is evil? What needs to be judged? Is redemption about judgment? Yes, it is. Of course it's about judgment. He's not saying it's all fault. It's about, it's about judging evil. Where does evil lie? Because it's, e- it's easy for me to be like, well, evil lies with those people, the people I disagree with, the people I'm in battle with, the, the evil ones. And, and what Jesus says is, you're actually all a part of that group. <laughs> Because evil has deeply infected your heart. So I can defeat evil by wiping you all out, option one. (laughs) Or I can do a surgical procedure where I actually take all the train wreck of human history into myself and I let it kill me in order that I can kill it. That's what he does. That's why their, their picture of Jesus, it was so faint it, it just wasn't good enough because that Jesus would never work. Simply getting rid of this group. Problem is, again, Israel would oftentimes become Pharaoh. We become Pharaoh. And so Jesus goes about it a radically different way. God's ultimate purpose, here's, here's what these Jewish men figured out. Here's what I need to try to figure out. That God's ultimate purpose was not to kill his enemies. It was to die for his enemies. And then the shocking part is, again, I find out I'm in that group. (laughs) I'm in the enemy group. Oh, I thought I was the good guy and they were the bad guys. He goes, no, you're actually all a part of that. That's who Jesus is. So Jesus' death, it's not a tragedy unless you get a bad picture of Jesus. If he's just coming to overthrow this dude to put another dude in power who will turn into Pharaoh as well. It's not a tragedy. Jesus' death is the way of human redemption. That's what redemption is. So even, but, but even after this little Bible study, they still don't see him. They still don't, they still don't get it. And, and so these two disciples still look at it. And so we have this, verse 28, we'll kind of end this passage here. It says, and, uh, and so they approached the village where they were gonna stop, uh, to which they were going. And Jesus, he said, like, like he acted like he was going on, it says. In the, in the Greek, it actually says, I have to go see a man about a horse. No, it doesn't, it doesn't really say that at all. Um, but, but it says they argued with him. Like, no, 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 you know, don't go, stay with us. And, you know, he's like, oh, okay, I, you know, I, guess, I guess I will. Because remember, Jesus does things not to con. He does things to bring us to a place of, of understanding, of enlightenment. And so he, he goes into the table with them, right? They're still blind. They still don't see who he is. Luke wants us to see that. And they have a meal. Now, he's being hosted, but notice what he does. He, he like takes the lead. 
which is weird. You don't do that when you're being hosted. So he takes the bread and he breaks it. And what happens when he breaks it? Their eyes are opened, Luke says. They finally, oh, it's Jesus. But now, what does Jesus, what does Luke want us to see? It says he, he took the bread and he broke it. Do you get it? What's the picture he had? What just, turn back two pages. When was the last time we see Jesus take bread and break it? Yeah, it was the Passover. It was right before his betrayal. He takes the, the, the Passover meal, he takes these symbols, and, and he reshapes them into what true redemption is. It's not about stepping on the bad guy. It's about destroying evil at the level of heart in every single human being. It says their eyes were opened, and then it says he's gone, he disappeared. They finally see him, and then they don't see him. <laughs> and then they say this, were not our hearts burning within us? Our hearts, remember that? Our hearts, the place of our commitments, our core values and our desires, were not those things burning within us when he opened up the scriptures? He talked about Genesis and Exodus and the prophets and all these sorts of things. It, the, the only way a disciple of Jesus can see, it's true for them and I think it's true for us, the only way a disciple of Jesus can truly see for themselves is to allow our assumptions about Jesus to be checked. And that's only by looking at the cross. That's why the cross is so central. That's why the New Testament writers constantly, that's why every time Christians got together in the early church, they talked about the cross, talked about the resurrection. Why? Because in the cross, we see the true picture of Jesus. Not, not the Jesus of glory and the Jesus of majesty. We see the suffering servant. And he says, this is the true way to defeat evil. Now, I don't, know what, I don't know what the habits in your life are. I don't know what the patterns in your life are. I don't know what the ideas. I'm not even sure if I know what they are all in my life that keep me from really, really seeing Jesus as I walk with him throughout my day. So how do we do it? Well, what we do is we start, we, we come to Jesus. We come to the wounded, broken Jesus on the cross and we confess we confess and, and we name our failures as we come to the bread and the cup that our eyes may truly be opened. Jesus, help me really see who you are and not these false pictures that I've made. I want to really see what is your plan for my life and where I'm at, what you're calling me to do. And so that's what communion is about this evening. We come to the image of the broken Jesus a reminder of the cost of our sin, the reminder of his commitment and love and dedication to us, and his promise that he has gone to the root of what evil really is in me and in you.